Welcome to Amped Up with Proud Resistor. This is progressive activist Ryan Knight. And I'm Chris Lavoy of The Stephanie Miller Show. And our guest today is Adam Green. Uh, he is the co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. It has nearly 1 million members nationwide. Uh, Adam Green, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be here. Yeah. Uh, you, you came back. That's always a good sign. Yes, we love it when people come back. We love return All right. guests. Um, All right. Before we dive into our discussion of the debate and uh, the, the state of the Democratic primary race, I first want to get your thoughts on the impeachment hearings. Uh, some in the media have said they've lacked pizzazz. I disagree. I, I think they've been riveting, compelling, and devastating to Donald Trump. Uh, Sondland's testimony directly implicated Trump in the bribery scheme. He also threw Pence, Pompeo, Giuliani, and Mulvaney under the bus. Uh, and just yesterday, Fiona Hill's testimony uh, single-handedly squashed Trump's fake conspiracy theory that Ukraine and not Russia attacked the 2016 election. Uh, what are your thoughts on how, how the impeachment hearings have been going? Yeah, you know, I, I would not mistake Jim Jordan's yelling <laughs> for Republicans having confidence right. in this current debate. Mm. You know, I think just watching how they are moving from argument to argument, retreating, 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 and yelling as they do it uh, is just evidence that our side is, is winning. Mm. And I just constantly keep in the back of my mind that interview with a woman who attended Justin Amash's town hall meeting back in the day right after he came out and said there's some de devastating stuff in the Mueller report, Justin Amash being a former Republican congressman turned independent because he had, had enough, but a very libertarian, you know, conservative person. Right. And, and he held a town hall meeting to announce his findings after reading the Mueller report. And one of his constituents who came to complain to him about, you know, trash talking Trump instead said to NBC, you know, all I listened to is conservative news. And I had no idea that Trump did anything wrong until tonight. Right. right? <laughs> And just looking at my own, you know, cable guide and looking at <laughs> CNN and M MSNBC and how all the time slots for hours and hours say impeachment hearings. It's like this is getting through. Yeah. Even if Republicans on Fox are watching the narrative that crazy, you know, Fox commentators are saying, they're seeing the core stuff and at least some of the facts are breaking through. So I feel pretty good about the trajectory of this thing. Yeah, I, I do. I do as well. And I, I just think that they've. Adam Schiff has been brilliant the way he, first off, he's put these Republicans in check. Yes. You know, he's using that gavel. Yeah. Um, and he's also, I mean, they, they're using the word bribery and, and, and again, they've directly connected Trump to, you know, this scheme that, that Trump had cooked up, uh, basically very similar to what he did in 2016, right? You know, calling on Russia to interfere in our election, except this time, you know, Trump is president. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's abusing the power of his office and uh, bribing Ukraine to, you know, open an investigation on one of his political rivals to, you know, to interfere in the 2020 election. So I, I think it, you know, it's a straight line, whereas the Russia investigation got a little complicated for people to kind of, to kind of chew. Yeah, in, in life, there are some things that are gray areas and some things that are no-brainers, and this really is a no-brainer. I mean, this is, this is the essence of an impeachable offense. This is beyond the essence of an impeachable right. offense. This is just like so many elements of things that are on their own, not just the low ebb of impeachment, but the high end. I mean, leveraging millions of dollars of our money to you know, get a, a foreign ally to do things to interfere in a political election is just ridiculous. Right. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So anyway, uh, here we are today. Here so we I'm are. Pretty confident. Yeah. And by the way, I would just say one other thing just before we talk presidential stuff to kind of connect the dots. 
is one thing that we've seen, you know, as as people who engage in the uh, you know political punditry <laughs> space on Twitter and you know just watch the national conversation is sometimes it requires Democratic leaders to just have the confidence of their convictions and make the case in order to move public opinion, right? right. Before there was kind of like this chicken and egg debate going on, but about like which comes first, public opinion moving or accountability? And some people were saying, oh, let's wait for public opinion to be there before we start holding Trump accountable. And what we've seen is when Democrats were unified and actually made the case, surprise, surprise, Democratic voters united around this impeachment position. Right. But also here, here come independent voters right. and also more and more Republicans, not a ton, but enough. So as we think about issues like Medicare for all and other things that are part of the national presidential dialogue, part of it is just like, Let's just freaking make the case yeah. and that will allow our own people to unite and uh, the numbers will go up. Absolutely. I, I think we've seen, look, there's, you, you have to fight for your values, right? Not compromise your values. And I think we've seen a lot of Democrats historically that think that we have to compromise what we stand for to win, right? And, and what's interesting to me always is like, you never hear the Republicans doing that, right? You never hear Trump or you know Mitch McConnell compromising their conservative values to try to win over Democrats, right? They just keep pushing their narrative, pushing their narrative, and f- pretty much forcing their politics onto the American people and be and always playing offense. Well, guess what? It works, right? Mm-hmm. They're never moderating their message to appeal to us. Yet it's Democrats always that you know if you turn on cable news, CNN or MSNBC. We're the ones who have to moderate our message to appeal to never Trump Republicans. And I just think it's it's such a double standard. Like, no, like we need to fight for our values because that's how we're going to win and not just win elections, but win the conversation, right? Win these policy debates. And then the American people will win, right? Because they'll have health care. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, you know, one step even before fighting for our values is at least stating our values, Right. right. I, mean, I mean, I mean, I love the last thing you said, like, at least I'll have health care. Right. Yeah, I think we could talk, we could talk about this, talk about this in a second. But we, you know, at the Progressive Change Institute, our education arm recently partnered with um, Public Citizen and a group called Business for Medicare for All. Yes, to do some I, polling. that is on my li- That's on our, on our list to go over. So I have. <laughs> yeah. You, so we can talk. About, we'll talk, talk about that, that but, in a moment. Um, but I first okay. let, let's turn the conversation to the Democratic debate. Sure. Um, I thought Wednesday night's debate was substantive. Uh, every mm-hmm. candidate on that stage showed they'd be a better president than Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And as the primary contest gets more heated, I think that's important to remember. With that said, even Tulsi <laughs> would be better than Donald Trump. There you go, Chris. <laughs> With that said, it, it's also important to differentiate the candidates and and yep. vet and vet the candidates. And the biggest yep. difference that I saw uh, in this debate is that the more moderate candidates like Biden and Buttigieg, you know, they argued that they want to heal the nation, and it's a nice thought, but we can't heal the nation without first fixing what's fundamentally broken. And this, for me, is what sets Elizabeth Warren apart from the field. You know, she too is arguing that she wants to heal the nation, but not with platitudes, with bold plans to fix our broken healthcare system, our corrupt political system, and our rigged economic system that's only working for a thinner and thinner slice at the top. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I would actually uh, add to that something that she said last night in a big speech she did uh, predominantly with African-American women in Georgia. She had this amazing line. She was like, you know, there are some people who talk about, you know, should we fight? 
And she's like, let's not be mistaken about this. We are already in the fight. Right. The, quest, the question is, are we going to win the fight? Right. right? And, and how are we going to win this fight? Are we going to win this fight for right, like fighting for our values or compromising our values? Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's been variations of this over time as people talk about, oh, you know, Democrats are, are declaring class warfare by wanting things like taxing the wealthy. And part of the argument is like, no, we've had class warfare as the people on the bottom make, you know, have been plateaued in terms of their money over decades, while those at the top make more and more and more. And we have, you know, increasing number of, co- of billionaires and concentration of wealth at the top, right? right? So her point is, who signs the government on? What, as you said, what systemic corruption is leading to that? And another point she made last night was, until we root out the systemic corruption, that will influence every policy debate that we want to have on things like health care and child care. So yep. let's really just identify it and win this fight. Well, so I think you and I are on the same page there. Yeah, well, and I also think like, we have real, real problems in our country. And I think this idea that we can just put a Band-Aid, you know, and, and jump right into, yeah, we're going to heal the nation, you know, without treating the, the deep infection, you know, and the underlying rot, you know, which for me is, you know, it's really simple. Like for me, it's like greed has corrupted our political system, our healthcare system, and our economic system. And I think that when you talk to everyday Americans, you can really feel the struggle and you can feel that. And I think whichever candidate can connect best with their struggle and the, and the pain that everyday you know, working people are going through, that's what's going to build a coalition that we need to, to, to beat Donald Trump. You know, I think that yep. you know, we need to give people something to vote for, not just something to vote against. Absolutely. And when you talk about the struggle and the pain and connecting with people, let me just share one, one story. I've had the opportunity to go out on the campaign trail. You know, we're the first national group to endorse Elizabeth Warren. Mm. And I was on her maiden, her maiden voyage into Iowa back in January and was actually back out there recently with her about a month and a half ago. And one virtue of her very long photo lines is that you have a captive audience and <laughs> these people are just there and they're willing to talk to you. Right. And I introduced myself to a bunch of people and I met this one fascinating Republican family, the Miners, in Fort Dodge, Iowa. And this guy, Wayne Miner, they're both, they run a small business together. He's a lifelong Republican. He voted for Nixon and Reagan and wow. Bush and Bush and McCain and Romney. In 2016, he couldn't vote for Hillary, but he couldn't vote for Trump, so he voted for Gary Johnson, former Republican governor, right. running as an independent. And he said to me, I, I cried when listening to Elizabeth Warren's personal story of struggle. And I was like, say more. What, what, what was it? And he said she talked about how her dad had a heart attack when she was young and her mom went, was forced to go into the job market. And the basic story is that she saved the family home by getting a minimum wage job and that that's not possible in a minimum wage job anymore. Right. But he's like, my dad died when I was 10 and my mom had to go into the job market. And basically his ears opened up to everything she had to say after that, after she connected on this emotional, personal level, level connecting their personal stories of struggle. And his wife, too, was like, you know, I didn't really know her story. I didn't know she grew up in Oklahoma. They both said that they came just to check out what she had to say because mm. she was in the area. And they both left committed to caucusing for her. Wow. Um, which, to me, is just a representation of how it's not about left versus right. It's, it's often inside versus outside. It's all of our struggle versus a couple elites at the top who are maintaining and exacerbating their struggles. And she speaks to that in such a way that pierces through. And 
I just think all your viewers deserve to know that that's what's happening on the campaign trail. She is not being perceived as a lefty, lefty candidate. She's being perceived, being perceived as of the people, of the working people, willing to challenge powerful interests on their behalf. And it's really breaking through. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and when you think about, you know, there's a report out recently that um, the top 1% now own uh, as much wealth as the entire middle class and upper middle class combined. Uh, and income inequality is uh, at a 50-year high in our country. And so there is, there's real economic struggle out there. And, you know, the idea of, you know, that status quo politics are just, you know, not changing much is going to help people. Like that's not right. That's not enough, you know, when there's this, when there's this much struggle. And I think we've had these problems for a long time, for decades now. And I think we've just kind of put little band-aids and little patches on it and not really gone in and done that big structural systemic change that we need. And look, I get it. It's scary. I think people are afraid. And I, you know, I think, I think in general, you know, people are afraid. I think Trump is scary. I think that he has, you know, he is a historically bad president. And I think that also plays into our primary process. And we need to talk about it because I think that as, as people are so scared of Trump that it automatically leads them to kind of want to pick a more safe choice. And I understand that. I get that. But when you look at someone like Warren, she is, like you just said, is able to reach those working people. And she's got, you know, Republicans at her rally and people that are the working class. And so, you know, it is it's, it's a healthy debate for our party to have. Like, how do we win back yeah. the working class and appeal to voters of color and bring that kind of Obama coalition in? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned people are scared. And I think it's worth kind of parsing out who is scared and about what. Because one thing that we found, I think you and I have talked about before, is that among our own people, right, among progressives, among Democrats, there are a lot of scared electability voters, people who right. at the end of the day want to win, but their first choice is to have a progressive, a bold progressive who can win. And they're being pelted with bad information by the Chris Matthews and the Chuck Todds of the world telling yeah. them that basically giving bad political advice, telling them that those who actually can win over wide swaths of the country are less electable. And it's like, you know, this Republican guy in Iowa and you know another independent woman that I met in line, they, they didn't have these reactions to Joe Biden at rallies. They had these reactions to Elizabeth Warren. So one really important thing is, is, you know, there's this thing called the magic wand question that started to be put in polls recently. I saw that. Where people say, yeah. And I love the fact that it's taking off and hopefully it takes off more. It's basically like, if you can wave a magic wand and put any of the current candidates in the White House, who would it be? And boom, wouldn't you know it, Elizabeth Warren, right? Right. So now the question is, who are these people who, answer Elizabeth Warren, but then they're like, but I think we need to go with Pete or Biden. They're scared, but they're being scared with bad political advice. So we need to really get that message out there. And the second thing is there's some people who are like, oh, well, of course I want to help people like, you know, beyond the election coming, you know, going to policy, we need to get what we can achieve. We need to bring people together and like these other people can actually pass their plans. And the thing that we have to remember is that sometimes more and more, more is more, right? More is more. So if I said to somebody, hey, we would like to make college affordable for you, or we would like you to have no debt leaving college, and someone else says, you know what, I'd like to make college 5% more affordable to you, and I'd, I'd, like, I'd like you to have 5% less debt, which of those two things is more popular with that voter, <laughs> right? right? The one that offers them more change in their life. Right. But there's this weird perception in the Beltway, in the DC pundit crowd, that less is more, mm. that offering less positive change somehow would be more popular. And what we found is that in past elections, like 2014, 
when Democrats really didn't have a message. I mean, it was just so minimalist. You know, what was the 2014 election about? It's hard to think about. And then the next day after we got walloped, where we lost neck and neck races by 8, 10, 12 points across the country, President Obama was lamenting how voter turnout was low. Well, we have to give people a reason to get motivated to vote. You know, a mom or a dad working three jobs, do they wake up on election day thinking, today I must vote because dot, dot, dot. Right. And it's up to us to inspire them. And Elizabeth Warren has proven to be doing that so far on the campaign trail. Yeah, well, I, I think you make some great points. I, I also think that we have to understand that, like, the reason the pundit class and the elites and the establishment, you know, don't want real change for the people is because maintaining the status quo, you know, keeps the rich rich, right? And it keeps the poor poor. And that's kind of the system we have. And, you know, the people up on top are basically stepping on, you know, the working class. And until, you know, we make real change, that's just, you know, and, and someone has to give something up, right? And for generations and for, for a long time now, the working class has been the one who's been given everything up. And I think now it's like what Warren's argument is like, yeah, a two cent wealth tax, pitch in two cents so we can give everyone else an opportunity to succeed. Someone has to, right? Like the people on the top can't just keep doing better and better. You know, they, someone has to make a sacrifice. And I think for a long time, it's the working class uh, and the middle class that's made a sacrifice. And we're seeing the middle class shrink and, and, and we need to rebuild it. And I think that, you know, I would like to hear some of the more moderate solutions to do that. I mean, that's one of the double standards, I think, in this whole contest is it's like Warren pitches these amazing ideas and then Biden or Buttigieg, rather than like sell their own moderate solutions, they attack Warren's big ideas. And I get that. It's a primary, but it's like, where's their plan? Like, where's their plan to rebuild the middle class and to you know, and to reduce the economic inequality in our country and to, and to, you know what I mean? Like you don't hear them selling and making a compelling message for moderate solutions. And I think it's because moderate, you know, centrism hasn't really worked. It's won a few elections, but it hasn't helped working people. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, if anything, I think it might be a, a little generous towards, uh, <laughs> you know, Pete, Pete and others who are having policy debates. Like I'm, I'm fine with a policy debate. Right. If people want to have a legitimate debate about the number of years in a transition to Medicare for all or, you know, exactly how to pay for something, that's that's fine. What's really frustrating is when they use explicitly right wing or insurance industry talking points right. to trash talk progressive ideas. Right. There are yeah. just things that have been poll tested and propagated by giant corporate interests that are not true, but that if Democrats are saying them, really taints the entire debate, yep. right? Things like, oh, minimum wage kills jobs. No, it doesn't. Study after study shows it doesn't. It increases the middle class. The middle class then buys more stuff. That creates more jobs. Right. That's proven over and over again. But when we're, what, sometimes you see Democrats on TV saying that. You know, um, this idea that you know, taxes will go up, blah, blah, blah. Well, Warren proved that taxes will not go up. She laid out the math. Right. And actually, you know, I'm, I'm actually looking – Right now, at a headline in the Indianapolis Star, um, you know, one of Mayor Pete's home state papers, saying, you know, headline is Buttigieg scored by hitting Warren on spending, but how will he pay for his own plans? And it basically adds up that he's proposed a more minimal four trillion dollars in spending compared to you know her twenty point five technically trillion dollars on Medicare for all. And he and while she has spelled out and done all of her homework and all of her math to spell out how she will pay for it. He has not even spelled out how we will pay for four trillion dollars. So right. there's also kind of a double standard here. Oh, right? for sure. Why is Elizabeth Warren, you know, the the brainy woman in the race, <laughs> asked to do the homework, but you know, the charming male is not asked to do his homework? And it's a little bit weird 
that debate moderators are not pressing him to do that now that he's supposedly in f- first place in Iowa. So right. I'm expecting a little bit more scrutiny on his ideas. And again, I'm fine with a, a policy debate when he, but right. when he repeats right wing or insurance industry talking points, that's very frustrating. Yeah. You know, look, I also want to kind of broaden the discussion because I thought Kamala Harris and Cory Booker had fantastic nights on Wednesday. And I, and I actually think maybe even resurrected their campaigns. Uh, but is it too late? I mean, is it kind of late in the game for that? I mean, I, I mean, if they resurrect their campaigns, they resurrect their campaigns. Um, I, I don't think it's too late for anybody. Uh, you know, Cory Booker, I thought, I think is always a good presence on the debate stage and makes, you know, very... Uh, Enlightened arguments. You know, I think he needs to have four positive polls in the next three weeks or something like that to show him, you know, above where he's been in the polls in order to make the next debate stage. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, and Kamala, yeah, I mean, I think Kamala had a sturdy night as well. Yeah. So you know, the way that I judge the debate is actually less about um, do I think made, people made good points or does one own supporters think they made good points, and more, what did the debate do to the fundamental trajectory of the race? Mm-hmm. Right. And through that lens, one element that I would bring to the top is actually around Elizabeth Warren. You know, she's been under siege the last two months over Medicare for all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. From the she, right she was and, she was attacked 18 times in the last debate. Every exactly. person on the stage attacked her. Yeah, it's I mean, more incoming was, fire than any Democrat has ever had in any debate this cycle. Yeah, that's a fascinating number. I hadn't heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And you'll recall after the Detroit debate, there was Chris Matthews who had a post-debate interview yep. and he just badgered her seven times yep. to say the magic words on taxes, yep. which ended up not being true, right? She's right. like, costs will go down and eventually she put out a plan where she wouldn't have to raise taxes uh, on middle-class families. On middle-class families, but, right. But one thing it was, and then in that same debate, everybody was like, Biden won, Biden won, Biden won. Two days later, 538 polling comes out showing that everybody thinks, well, not right, but a large majority of those who took the poll thought that Warren won the debate yep. out of, you know, 10 or so candidates. So what does that say? It says, one, there's a huge disconnect between the pundits and the voters. Yeah. Right? The pundits are obsessing over things that the, pundit, that the voters are not. And her messaging before was fine. But nonetheless, there was a crescendo in the pundit class just coming after her, fed by people like Pete, you know, attacking her on Medicare for All with false insurance industry talking points. So she puts out one plan that shows how much Medicare for All will accurately cost and how she will pay for it without raising taxes on the middle class, asking the wealthy to pay their fair share. A second plan, which I think is actually very positive um, about how she would do the transition. And we could talk about that if you want. And what we saw last night in the debate was that there was no incoming fire towards her, yeah. that she quelled, she quelled a lot of the chattering class incoming fire. And what I hope is that any of the scared electability voters who were just freaked out by the fact that she was getting attacked even though she was doing fine under siege. Um, they're like, okay, great. She's weathered the storm. This is She's battle-tested. She was forcefully advocating for other things. Her core message on systemic corruption and a wealth tax and you know being on the side of regular people. And that's what Elizabeth Warren presidential candidacy will look like. And I'm hoping that, you know, even though some of the pundits are like, oh, it was a boring debate. That's fine. Boring was good yeah. for Elizabeth Warren because well, it reminded people of just her core message and she was able to get it out so clearly on Wednesday night. Yeah, I would agree. I also think that the, the best thing that she did is she, you, you know, that the biggest fear mongering that I've heard is, is, and it's more the corporate media that does it, uh, is that, you know, they're going to take away your insurance. You know, you're going to lose your insurance because, I mean, the whole idea of Medicare for all is like everybody gets insurance, right? No one's, lo- everybody gets great health care. 
at a much lower cost, right? And it's not attached to your job. So if you get fired, you still have healthcare and it, and it helps small business, right? It helps entrepreneurs because they can open a new business and not have to, you know, you know, people have healthcare, right? So, but what I thought was the most genius part is that she now has a three-year transition plan to get to Medicare for all. So it's not like it's just going to happen instantly. Like it wouldn't happen on day one, you know, where, and and that's kind of Bernie's dug his heels in a little bit on that. But I just think that again, with so much uncertainty in our country and with so much fear, I think that plan to kind of, she's, she laid out a plan to fund it. And she also laid out a plan to get us there in three years. And also the plan includes unions, people who worked really hard for their insurance. It, it, you know, that's in there that they can negotiate, you know, and it, it also includes yeah. parts where, you know, employees can negotiate with their companies because companies will save money with Medicare for all too. So that money can get transferred into their paychecks. So they'll have a little more money in their paycheck, you know, every month. Um, I thought that was the, the the most brilliant thing that she's done in this whole campaign cycle because it shows that she's not just, you know, there was someone said she's it's my way or the highway. It's Warren's way or the highway. She heard feedback and she said, okay, no, we won't do Medicare for all day one. We'll have a three-year transition plan to get us there. And I think that shows that she's malleable and she's willing to adjust. And, and I think that's also a better general election argument and it takes some of the fear of Medicare for all out of it. Um, but, yeah, and... And just to react to that, you know, having worked with her now for, what, eight or so years, you know, we ran the original draft Elizabeth Warren for Senate campaign in 2011 and have been in the trenches with her. One thing that I've just consistently seen is Elizabeth Warren goes into battle with a fully baked plan, mm. right? A fully baked plan on the policy and a fully baked plan to build a coalition and win. And, you know, she did listen, but I just want to lay out a couple elements of, of that transition plan. And what she says is on day one and in her first 100 days, she will accomplish two big chunks of the work that frankly wouldn't happen until the Senate and the House and the President you know, eventually passed into law the current Senate bill. So on day one, she would um, make a, a bunch of executive actions that undo a lot of the sabotage that Trump has done to the Affordable Care Act. Right. That Which is why the premiums of- are so high. I mean, let's get yes. it straight. The Republicans are not only trying to take away Obamacare, they've sabotaged it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. She would cover millions of children with Medicare and, um, you know, with a bill that she would only needs to pass with 51 votes in the Senate, which has a bunch of no brainer stuff in it. She would bring down the age of Medicare to 50 from 65, putting tens of millions of new people into Medicare. Yep. She would also put millions of children into Medicare and she would give everybody in between the option of buying into Medicare at that moment if they want to. And this is key and does not get enough attention. You know, the current version of Medicare for all that everybody talks about is actually an expanded version of Medicare. It covers vision and dental and covers long-term care, which is one of the most important things for so many families and it bankrupts so many families. She would cover that, you know, in the bill that she would pass in her first 100 days. Yep. So what does that mean? If you're thinking about just how do we pass this logistically, you know, in, in voting, you know, we do a lot of election stuff. If you take someone off the sidelines and make them a voter for you, that equals one extra vote in your column. If you take one of your opponent's votes and move them, in, them into your column, that's actually a net gain of two. Yes. Right? One yes. out of. So, what she's doing is taking 50 million, maybe more people who otherwise might have uncertainty about what Medicare for All would mean to them and who would be very susceptible to insurance industry TV ads and talking points, the right wing echo chamber, and unfortunately the Democratic echo chamber like Rahm Emanuel, you know, <laughs> the, the, the corporate <laughs> Democrats. And she's, and she's moving them from the column of people that they can mobilize against Medicare for all 
and putting them, making a building a political constituency right. for Medicare for all. Right. So that you know, just to be clear, it's not that the fight wouldn't happen until year three. There would be multiple layers of the fight leading up to the final vote right. that would happen in year three. Right. But by expanding benefits, moving tens of millions of people in, and building, taking people out of their column, putting them in our column. She's equipping us to actually win the fight right. in year three, right. and she's promised that it'll all be done, you know, fully implemented by year four. Well, and when, when you put of, people on it, yeah. right, then you're going to yeah. hear the positive feedback, right? I mean, you're 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 right. exposing some people into the system, and then oh, and here's the other thing that people need to understand: Medicare is the most popular insurance of all insurance in America. It it proves that like 95 percent of people are satisfied with their Medicare. They love it. Once they have Medicare, you can't get them off of it. Um, I do want to shift the conversation because we I have my little list. We got more to cover here. <laughs> um, what do you think of Joe Biden? Because, and I think this is why kind of the, the, the race is so fluid right now. I thought Joe Biden gave just another subpar debate performance. He had that big gaffe where he forgot that Kamala Harris was, <laughs> was you know, elected to the Senate. You know, he said the only African-American woman uh, that's ever been elected to the Senate had yeah. endorsed me. And then he Kamala tried to goes, play it off by saying, oh, the first, the first. Yeah, I meant the yeah. first. But Kamala had that yeah. great line where she's like, uh, I'm right here. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was just like another gaffe, but like, it, it, you know, it's like, this is what we've seen him. And, you know, I guess there was a report yesterday that he has a speech impediment. He's had a stutter ever since childhood. He has childhood. a stutter since childhood. And I am like okay. so sympathetic to that and, and whatever. But like, we're, we're just hearing about this now. The, well, we've, like, well, we didn't we've, hear about we've this about like, it. in his first two no. campaigns. We've known about it, but he's ran for president two other times and has been an issue then. It just seems to be an issue now. I right. don't buy that. Right. I'm sorry. And so it was just kind of weird timing. But yeah. here, here's my point is, is, is Biden keeps delivering these kind of subpar debate performances it, I think it's making the donor class and the political establishment really nervous, right? That's why mm -hmm. they want Bloomberg to enter the race. And that's why they want, you know, Duval Patrick mm -hmm. uh, to enter the race. And, and but, but what I think is like, that's kind of what's causing so much uncertainty, right? Because we already have so much uncertainty with Donald Trump and then who people kind of coronated at the beginning back in January or February when he got into the race, it was like, oh, here's Biden. Like only Biden can beat Trump. Remember that narrative we heard every day on of corporate course. media? And Absolutely. so I think that now that we're seeing that like, wait a second, Biden looks pretty vulnerable and he looks like he, I just look at it like from, from an eyeball test. Like I don't care what the polls say because A, I know polls change. And B, I know that every poll in America said that Hillary Clinton was gonna beat Donald Trump, right? In 2016. Mm -hmm. And guess what happened? Hillary Clinton didn't beat Donald Trump. And one thing that I think people need to understand is polling shows how, what a candidate kind of looks like on paper, but there's more to how a candidate's going to perform than, than, than just the polling. And I think the problem we had in 2016 is we didn't have enough energy in, the, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, because we didn't have an economic message for working people. And we didn't have like a grassroots big campaign that got people to the polls in those important swing states. And the African-American turnout was a little bit lower. So we uh -huh. have got to fire up and energize these voters. And when I see Biden on the campaign trail, I just don't see someone who can lead a movement and fire up and energize the voters that we need to get out to vote, right? I see someone who is a safe choice to the pundit class and who think like, yeah, Biden... You know, look, maybe Biden of eight years ago could beat Donald Trump. Maybe Biden of four years ago can beat Donald Trump. But I, I have mad respect for Joe Biden. And I thought he was a great vice president. Yep. I don't think this Joe Biden. Is, Hello? Over oh, here. Okay. I don't think this Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump. And I just think when I look at yeah. it. And so I think that's created a lot of this uncertainty. And it's also, look, let's, 
it's also the reason Pete has risen, right? I think a lot of the Biden support has gone over to Mayor Pete. Um, yep. And, you know, I think, look, I want to just get Chris's take here because Buttigieg has surged in Iowa. Uh, what's holding him back is he is closing, he is polling at close to 0% with black voters. Uh, can he translate his success in Iowa and broaden his support? I think that's the big question. Now, he did have that botched launch of his Douglas plan and his record on race relations in South Bend has made this an uphill climb. Chris, what are your thoughts? Because you're more of, Chris is more of the moderate wing of it. Well, I, I am a little more moderate than, you know, some people. Um, and right now, Buttigieg appeals to me. He's, you know, I still have a top five a, a list of candidates that I like, and those top five change all the time. And I will not decide my ultimate candidate until the day of the California primary. Yep. That's just the way I operate, how I've operated for the last 30 years of voting. Um, but I, I th right now, Buttigieg speaks to me. You know, you talked about that, that um, you know, intangible thing. Um, Buttigieg, the way he's eloquent, the way he's calm, the way he's measured, I think is a great antidote to the last three years that we've had. That, that's, that's just the way I feel. Yeah, and I mean, do you think that he's, he has enough meat on the bones, right? You know, when we talk about the deep problems we have in America and we talk about the broken economy. There's 72 days until the, until the Iowa system. caucuses. He has 72 more days to, you know, put some more meat on the bones mm -hmm. for me. I think for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's an important thing to, to it's a good perspective mm -hmm. to have Yeah, because he is, he's, he's not resonating with me, right. but he is resonating with people. He's, obviously he's resonating with people yeah. if he's, you know, surging in, in the Iowa polls, not necessarily yeah. South Carolina polls, but, uh, right. You know, and, and he admitted yesterday, yeah, we have a problem there and we got a lot to work on yeah. in South Carolina. So he's aware of the problem. Um, you know, he's, he's not sticking his head in the sand. Yeah. But um, right now he's focused on Iowa. And every time he speaks, he makes such good sense to me. So, you know, I, I definitely agree with you that you mentioned the intangible that he has. Mm -hmm. And that he's a good public speaker. You know, I would add words like charming and occasionally witty. Yep. to the mix. It's, it's, it's a satisfying. It's charismatic. It's, it's a satisfying experience to listen to him speak and to see him rebut points. Um, he's a very skilled debater, mm -hmm. and sure, like you know, I would if every Democratic candidate in America could have his debating and you know personal persona presence skills, that would be fantastic for our party. You know, I guess the question I would have is in a world where polls show that multiple candidates can beat Trump. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Warren fares better against Trump that right now than Pete does. But mm -hmm. let's, just, let's assume that all things are even. You know, and you're actually thinking about governing. Is, are the people that he surrounds himself with, are the ideas that he espouses, you know, what, do they meet the moment of what we need to achieve? And, you know, I will say that one thing that worries me is that, you know, he, again, has been using insurance industry talking points against Medicare for all, right? Not swimming in the same direction, but, you know, politely disagreeing about the policy, but really repeating some of the tropes that literally are handed out by the insurance companies to members of Congress to say on TV. And, you know, on things like breaking up big tech monopolies that hold down so many small businesses and invade people's privacy rights by virtue of being monopolies, rip people off and suppress our economy by virtue of being economies, given his you know, funding base in Silicon Valley, you know, apparently his friendship with Mark Zuckerberg, but you know, less relevant to me, you know, is he willing to actually challenge power? Right. right? Uh, when I think about Elizabeth Warren and one of the top reasons we support her, she has spent years building a network of A-list heavy hitters across the country 
who know how to use power and know, you know who the villains are and where the hidden bodies are and like what they can do with power. So if, if, it, if it were her charge to fill an executive branch with thousands of people and put the right people in the EPA and put the right people in the Justice Department to actually enforce civil rights but also to break up big monopolies, which is the Department of Justice, the right people in obscure agencies like FERC that have huge power over the insurance or the oil companies and the energy people, um, you know, having worked with all these regulators in the states for years, I have such confidence that she would use the maximalist version of existing powers granted by Congress years ago, decades ago, New Deal, that just have been collecting dust and not been utilized. Then you think about Mayor Pete and his network, you know, having won 8,000 votes in South Bend, Indiana, you know, having, you know, apparently a small enough crew that he is susceptible to these insurance industry talking points. And I just ask, what would his presidency look like compared to Elizabeth Warren? And to me, it's just like she meets the moment. So if one accepts that he's the only one who can win, okay, that's an opinion. But if one accepts that there are multiple candidates who can win, and the question is, what type of presidency do we want, especially after Trump? You know, I go with Elizabeth Warren, and you know, that's my view. Yeah, and, I would, and, and Pete more closely aligns with my values. Right, right. And, and that's the debate we're having. You know, mm -hmm. I would say that what, what I've seen in America, the, the problem for me is that for years and years, power has been taken out of the hands of the people and has been put into the hands of corporations and billionaires. And I think that under Donald Trump's presidency, that it's gotten even worse. I think that, you know, he went out there and he told Pete voters in 2016 that the system is broken, the system is rigged, right? And, and, and I'm going to fix it. But what Trump ended up doing is he went and rigged the system even more for corporations and billionaires and for the wealthy. And so, you know, when I look at like who is the antidote to Trump, it is someone for me like an Elizabeth Warren who's actually going to break up a lot of that power that's at the top, right? That just keeps getting bigger and bigger and she's going to put democracy and put America back into the hands of the people and also center people who've never really had power, right? I think that, you know, her, while Pete has struggled with black voters, Warren has gone from zero, per, like zero percent in April or at two percent in April. She's now at 20 percent in the Quimpiac poll. She, her, she's increased her support 20 points by what has she done? She's gotten to work, right? She's rolled up her sleeves. She has went and she's reached out to uh, black activists and and she's gone and she's had roundtable discussions with you know some of the you know most important black woman activists in America and that's why you just saw a bunch of them endorse her uh, and then she just delivered a landmark speech last night in Atlanta you know talking about uh, black woman's history and how you know amidst systematic discrimination from the government that black women persisted, right? And they are the ones who've led every social and economic justice movement in America, despite overcoming all of these odds. And, you know, she had a moment at the end where she's like, that's the true story of persistence in America. You know, everyone talks about me and persistence. And, and I just think that the way she centers others in her campaign, it's not about her. It's not about Warren. It's about how she can help lift up others. I think that is the message for me that I would like to see. Like, and I, you know, like I, I feel you, Chris, you know, I hear that, you know, and I, I can see it in the polls. P Pete's register, you know, he's, he's registering with people. And I think, I think another thing for me though, is like, yeah, he does have a lot of charisma, but for me, this moment is about so much more than having a lot of charisma. Like this moment is about, we've got real problems in America and we can't keep glossing over them. Like now it's time to really fix them and get in there and do it. And that's where I look at someone like Warren, like I have no doubt in my mind that she's fighting for my family and she's fighting for your family and she's fighting for 
Republican families that won't even vote for her. Yep. Amen. Well put. Well yeah, put. There you go. <laughs> um, another issue I wanted to touch on too, get your take on Adam is, you know, I've noticed quite a bit of hypocrisy uh, in the primary when it comes to vetting the candidates, uh, yeah. vetting the moderate candidates who let's face it are a lot of them are funded by wall street donors and big money donors is considered quote unquote divisive, but attacking the progressive candidates who are funded by and fighting for the people is daily programming on CNN, MSNBC, and pretty much every corporate media outlet in America. H- have you noticed this pattern, Adam? No, I haven't noticed it. Can you tell me more? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's but that's what we're facing. Like for me, like it's and you know, people say like it would be historic if if Warren won because she'd be the first woman president. I'd say actually it would be more historic if Warren won because she'd be the first truly progressive president since FDR. Yes. You know, Absolutely. progressives have a steeper path. I mean, we haven't, you know, Pete has the wind at his backs, you know, because of all the press he gets on, you know, corporate media. So does Biden. But with War- with Warren and Bernie, I mean, it's like every day it's like they're throwing arrows and, and bombs at them. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, this could be an hour long discussion, but you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we have not had the full wind at our backs as progressives um, ever, including you know, during the Obama administration. Um, and it would be a new high watermark for our side if the presidential bully pulpit, which guides the news so much, was you know putting wind in our sails, and we had an Elizabeth Warren on TV making the case for progressive ideas. Yep. And you know, an incentive. You know, again, I, I just turn back to what we saw during impeachment was when Democratic leaders rally around the same agenda that progressives have been advocating for. Surprise, surprise, we buck up our own troops. And we win. Moves in our, and, and we win. And we're about to win you know, on, on that very soon. And we're already winning in the national debate. And the same will be true if, you know, it could be, you know, it would just be weird for Nancy Pelosi and <laughs> Democratic leaders in Congress to not rally around the Elizabeth Warren agenda. So we'd have unity. And finally, we would have, you know, not an intra party squabble over all these progressive ideas, but instead, you know, full guns ablazing or whatever your non-gun analogy is, you know, in the battle. Um, and we'd have we'd be operating on all cylinders, fighting the Republicans in special interests, and taking a battering ram to systemic corruption and to you know this class warfare that has been waged on middle class and poor families for so many years. It'd be, I think, a very inspiring moment for the country. Yeah, well, and I think you know I think it would also like we would be the party of the people. You know, I think Absolutely. right now we yes we are, but you know it's harder to make that argument when you know obviously Republicans uh, cater to big money and to the corporations and to the billionaires more. They're just unapologetic yeah. about it. But we do yeah. have you know about half of our party that kind of plays the that game as well. You know, I would I would say that there are a lot of Democrats who are fiscally conservative. You know, they're socially progressive, well, but they're fiscally conservative. And I would just you know well, tell people that like when we have this much inequality in our economy it's not enough for our party to just be socially progressive anymore we have to be fiscally progressive too if we're going to see real change in this country lift up working and middle class families yeah and I, you know i think a point that elizabeth warren would make as president and will likely make on the campaign trail is that you know i wouldn't use the word conservative but fiscally responsible sure like progressives can own the mantle of fiscal responsibility by actually challenging powerful interests and being willing to tax the rich, right? Right now in Congress, over the last several years, the only budget that's been a balanced budget has been the Congressional Progressive Caucus budget. And that's because they're actually willing to tax Wall Street and tax the very wealthy, right. while even, even some Democrats pull their punches there and then say, ah, how are we going to pay for it all, right? 
right. you know, Elizabeth Warren just figured out how to pay for Medicare for all without raising middle class taxes. But it does ask Wall Street and the very rich to pay their fair share. Great. I mean, we, we can own fiscal responsibility. I wouldn't call it conservative. We're not cutting money. But, you know, there's no reason that people have to feel bad about you know wanting basic fiscal discipline. You just have to not feel bad about actually challenging power. And when I think of Elizabeth Warren in two words, it's challenging power. Amen. Uh, last thing I have here is, uh, is there's a new poll out for Medicare for All uh, by your group. And I was you know considering that every moderate candidate and every corporate media outlet have spent the past few months attacking Medicare for All. I think the results are, are impressive. 66% of voters nationwide support Medicare for All. And what I think is even more impressive by the new poll is 63% of voters in key battleground states support it. So does this mean that people don't really love their private health insurance? <laughs> well, it, 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 does, it does mean that, but it means a little bit more. So first, I would just point out that, uh, the, again, the Progressive Change Institute, Public Citizen, and Business for Medicare for All collaborate on this. And Business for Medicare for All is actually led by a guy named Wendell Potter, whose name might be familiar. He was a former Cigna vice president yep. who turned whistleblower yep. and is now an advocate for Medicare for All. But he points yep. out- And he's, been on, he's actually been on the Stephanie Miller show, yeah. Yeah. which ho- hosts our he's podcast. He's been a great guest. And yeah. he's been awesome. Yes. And he, he's, he's actually been one of the few guests on MSNBC who has like spoke about Medicare for All in a way that working people can relate with. And like, oh my God, like this is great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, he, he points out that he literally wrote when when he worked for the insurance companies the talking points that are now coming out of you know Pete and others' mouths that taxes will go up and you'll lose your health care. And what we did in this poll, you know, and we did it by, with a group called with a pollster called GBAO, which also polls for the DCCC mm-hmm. and many successful House and Senate candidates. So we wanted this to be the most credible poll possible. Little behind the scenes thing, we worked with a new Democrat coalition, more of a, a corporate wing Democrat. prominent leader who opposes Medicare for all to write the language attacking Medicare for all in our own polling to make sure that it was rock solid. Wow. And what we, what we found was, yes, in the beginning, it starts off 66% to 34%. After an entire battery of negative attacks, an entire battery of positive attacks, half the people heard the positive attacks first, half the people heard the negative attacks first. At the end of the day, it still winds up at like 63%. We lose like a point or two, three. Uh, within the margin of error, which is but, the, so, it's you know, the majority of the American people support Medicare for yes, all. Mm-hmm. Support Medicare for all, and the majority and, uh, of the American people support Warren's wealth tax. So, like, that's uh, what I think right. we need to stress. Like, all these moderates who are saying that her plans are disruptive, maybe they're disruptive to the billionaire class right. and the establishment class, but they're not disruptive to working people because they're going to help pe- working people's lives. They're good for working people. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> And there's one more big point I would, I would take from this poll if I had just one more to make, which is we tested, we rigorously tested different rebuttals to the attacks. So for the idea that 150 million people would lose their private health insurance, we tested the Bernie Warren line that nobody loves their health insurance company, they love their doctor. And with Medicare for all, you actually have more choice because every doctor would be a network and you wouldn't have to fear losing your doctor if you switch jobs or get fired, et cetera. We tested an argument about, that you made before about the gradual transition don't worry, it's not happening all at once. It will take a few years. You know, millions of people will voluntarily get there first before everybody's covered. And we tested the Kamala argument, basically, saying, oh, don't worry, private insurance will still exist. And you know, I thought maybe that one would do better. But they all landed in virtually the exact same place. Actually, the Kamala version ended, was a tiny little bit less popular, but within the margin of error. And our point, you know, we actually just briefed the Congressional Progressive Caucus on these numbers um, on Tuesday. And our point to them was, look, 
you can make multiple good points. And the same for taxes. Numerous versions of the tax rebuttal worked fine. You just have to make the case. And we actually played for them clips of Rahm Emanuel over the, over the weeks on This Week with George Stephanopoulos, where he just keeps making the insurance industry case for them. Right. He kept saying, millions of people will lose their health care. Millions of people will lose their health care. Taxes will go up. It's like, if you do that, we're going to lose. But as long as you make one of multiple cases, if you're willing to like pick one and just speak from the gut, make the case, then we win. Right. And that, that, that is generalizable to the campaign as well. If we have our own people on the, on the debate stage using right-wing talking points, insurance industry talking points, we will lose. But if we actually have the confidence of our convictions, even if it's slightly different messages, any of them assuage the public and we win. So that's a big, a big point. That's awesome. Well, look, this has been, uh, thank you again, Adam, for taking the time to come and talk to us. You're always welcome on, on Amped Up. Cool. And thank you for your national um, leadership in the Twitter world. Everybody should, every, everybody should follow Proud Resistor and happily retweet because and, uh, it's such an important breath of fresh air. Well, and everyone should follow Adam Green. What, what's your Twitter account? It is actually Adam Green. Look at that. At Adam Green. Easy. And, and, uh, the, and, and the Progressive Change Campaign Committee is Bold Progressive. At Bold Progressive. Well, look, I, I really appreciate all the work you do uh, to help working families in this country. And uh, I look forward to talking to you soon, Adam. Sounds great. Have a good one. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. You too. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Yep. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Good. And we had a little debate, Chris. We had a little debate. We had a little Warren Buttigieg. <laughs> yes, we did. That's good. Yes. It's healthy. That's right. And we didn't, we kept it respectful. And we kept, we kept it positive. We kept it positive. Yeah. No yeah. bashing. No. Vetting. Right. Right. Keep it positive. Exactly. Uh, and, and I'd like to urge people to keep it positive on Twitter too, because we don't need to be tearing each other down and yep. tearing each other's candidates down. Let Tell me what appeals to you most about your candidate. Right. Don't tell me what is shitty about my candidate right sorry yeah, no and and i think look i think that we are getting to that phase where it's getting heated mm -hmm. yeah which all primaries do but i think what's really important to remember and i can't stress this enough every single candidate on that stage on wednesday mm -hmm. night would be a better president than donald trump even tulsi even tulsi and i will get behind anyone you know once this mm -hmm. primary is over yes. and there is no sitting it out i think you know look we our party, we are the big tent party. Yes, we are. Um, and, and as so, such... And, and such as a big tent, we have moderates and we have progressives. We're going to have some quibbles. And we're going to have some quibbles. But I think at the end of the day, when we come together, when the when moderates and progressives come together, mm -hmm. we are so much stronger than the Republican yep. Party. They don't have a chance. And right. so I do agree. I mean, look, I'm someone who I believe in progressive values. Mm -hmm. I believe in what I believe in. And, and I fight for what I believe in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, if if... Whoever wins this primary, I will be in their corner. We will be talking about them on this podcast. We will be yep. doing everything we can. And, you know, I hope that that is the case for everyone, whether you support Pete or Warren or Biden or Kamala or Corey or Amy, you know, whoever it is, you know, or I just, Julian. I just don't want to get into another 2008 situation where it's, you know, Hillary versus Obama. And th that was so bitter. Yeah. So bitter. Yeah, I, I think that we need to, there is a difference between vetting and bashing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that we do need to vet our candidates. Yes. You know, I think yeah. that is important. And sure. I think that- Find out as much as you can. Much information. Absolutely. You know, and I think that, you know, there is a, like we talked about, there can be a sometimes a hypocrisy where, right. you know, the more moderate candidates don't get vetted by the corporate media. So I think activists sometimes feel an obligation when they see some fact online, like, whoa, like we need to share this with people. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. I think that we need to keep it respectful right. and based on differences, mm -hmm. not based on, you know, below the belt, you know, attacking them personally. Right. You know, no personal attacks. Exactly. But like you, you got called a homophobe for not supporting 
Pete Buttigieg. I did. And somebody called that, me. A, that's, that's not. Somebody called me a homophobic asshole. Right. Because I shared about his Douglas plan, where he said, and "No Democrat should call another Democrat that." Well, look. Let me like. I am an LGBTQ activist. Yes. I am not homophobic. Right. I am a proud gay man. Right. Just because I'm gay, it doesn't mean that politically I align with Pete. I, I am happy that there is an openly gay person running for president. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Right. I am thrilled about that. And I would love to see an LGBTQ president in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. I just, in this moment, I think that the right person for the job is Elizabeth Warren. And and if but if if and, our party thinks it's Pete, I will get behind Pete. And I was told yesterday that I only support Pete because I am gay. Right. I'm sorry. Him being gay is about the eighth most interesting thing about him. To Agreed. Me. Well, and you know what I think is actually fa- which, which, which I is, barely register that he's even gay. Let me throw Pete a bone here. What I think is really awesome is that Pete's not being attacked for his sexuality. Which is... He's being attacked because some people, like myself, think he's a little too moderate. Which is... That's progress. You know, yeah. He started out kind of talking like progressive and I was interested in Mm -hmm. him. And then he kind of shifted to being more moderate when Mm -hmm. he saw an opportunity to kind of chase Biden support. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I'm looking for someone who's not going to change their politics in the wind. I'm looking for someone who has strong convictions Mm -hmm. right now and kind of knows who they are. But... Look, the fact that, like, yeah, we're not attacking him because he's gay. No, no. And I think that speaks and I'm to... Not, and I don't support him because, because he's, he's gay. gay. And so I think that speaks to kind of how far we've come yeah. in the LGBTQ community. Exactly. That we can have a gay man running for president. Mm-hmm. And my disagreement, disagreement with him has nothing to do with his sexuality. Right. And I would be happy to support him in the general if he yep. won. Yep. So stop calling me homophobic. It doesn't help the cause either. And stop telling me that I'm only <laughs> voting for him because he's gay. Because that's that. not... That's not true Look at, at all. That. Yeah. All right. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. That like two people can be friends. Exactly. You can like Buttigieg. Yeah. I can like Warren. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you'll vote for Warren and I'll vote Absolutely. for Buttigieg if Absolutely. they win the primary. Yep. Absolutely. It's, it's pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, before we close the show, we have to talk about power swabs. Oh, yeah. Okay. These things are amazing. You know, you go to the dentist. It can be super costly. Yep. The out-of-pocket money and time to get off work mm-hmm. and to get your teeth whitened yeah. and then you got those trays that, that that always make you drool and they're sloppy yeah and they're expensive Gross. and then teeth whitening strips are expensive and uh-huh. you don't really notice a difference well you've never really whitened until you've whitened with power swabs right they're clinically proven to whiten on average two shades in the first five minutes that's that's not bad at all two shades five minutes that's Crazy. That's like, okay, let me whiten and go to the party. Yeah, exactly. So you need to try power swabs and you will not believe how much whiter your teeth will be in just five minutes. I got you a great deal. If you go to powerswabs.com and use my code sexy or for 40% off plus an additional $10 off. Whoa. It's that extra $10. That's that, nice. that, that, that pushes me over the edge. Yes. Plus a free quick stick. What? Yep. That's right. 40% off plus $10 off, plus a free quick stick, which is like whitening on the go. Yeah. You want to do a quick little whitening? Right, right, right. Uh, or you can call 1-800-668-1749 and use my code SEXY. Again, that's powerswabs.com, code SEXY. Visit powerswabs.com today. Uh, I just, before we end the show, I think this conversation we're having is so awesome mm-hmm. because again, you know, I, look, as, as an activist, I, you know, I have a big Twitter platform sure. and, you know, I, I do feel a responsibility that in the general election, mm-hmm. we will vote blue no matter who. Right. But I also do think that in the primary, it is important to send who we think is the best candidate to not only beat Trump, but to bring real change to America. Mm-hmm. 
because I think that we need change in this country. And so, you know, I, I will look, I, I have been, I have vetted Pete, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like the, the MSNBC and CNN kind of, you know, they didn't talk about the Douglas plan where, you know, he said that 400 people in South Carolina endorsed him. Mm-hmm. Turns out 200 of them were white. Right. And then the campaign came out and said that, which is good. I'm glad they did. Yep. Um, you know, and some of his... Maybe issues- that's why the story died, though, because... The right, campaign- but you didn't hear it in the debate. I mean, look, if Bernie Sanders had said that 400 black people endorsed him mm-hmm. and 200 of them turned out to be white, it would have been the first question that Rachel Maddow asked Bernie Sanders on the debate. I mean, we just got to be honest. And so I just think that we all want to have a level playing field where the candidates all get vetted, mm-hmm. it's fair, but you're right, it shouldn't be personal. But right. when I had shared that, you know, sometimes when you, the danger part is when we all form these kind of little intense groups around a candidate, mm-hmm. is I had just shared like an article off of, you know, stating that like P- Buttigieg fudged his support. Did you just in say there. Poot Buttigieg? <laughs> no, Pete. <laughs> oh, Pete. I yes, no. But he, he fudged his Douglas plan. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a mistake in there. And all I did is share an article and someone said that I was a homophobic asshole. And we don't and like, need, that's we don't not helpful that. either because no. then that just adds. No Democrat should, uh, no matter the circumstances, no Democrat should ever use that language towards another Democrat. Right. Well, and it just, it, it doesn't help Pete. Right. You know, like it, they had that poll in South Car- Th- Carolina where they asked black voters, like, mm-hmm. you know, why they weren't supporting him because he's mm-hmm. polling at 0%. And, you know, I, they, they pulled 21 older black people right. in South Carolina. Right. The poll said that there is some level of, you know, older black voters mm-hmm. who have maybe a little issue with the sexuality thing. Okay. But here's the deal. Don't release that poll. His campaign released that poll, making it look like they were kind of scapegoating black voters. Mm-hmm. That that's the reason that they weren't supporting him was because of his sexuality. We don't need like pitting minority groups against each other is what Trump and the Republicans do. Yeah. All Pete has to do is roll up his sleeves, just like Warren did, and reach out to these communities and deliver his message to them and try to build a coalition. Mm-hmm. But when that happened, that brought up a lot of stuff because it's like you can't start blaming voters, right? Like maybe there is some homophobia, but there's also homophobia in the white community. Look, I'm a, I'm a white guy. I grew up in a conservative family. Mm-hmm. Guess what? My family didn't accept me when I first ca- when I first came out at yep, 18. Right. They accept me now and they love me now. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is like blaming and scapegoating voters is not the solution to beating Donald Trump. Right. Especially voters like the 95% of black voters voted against Donald Trump in 2016. They are our backbone mm-hmm. of our party. So our nominee has to speak to them, not just speak to them, energize them and have a plan for them. And so I think that was when he did that and I said, you know, you shouldn't release that poll. Then a lot of people, you know, so we have to be able to have these discussions because at the end of the day, Pete will be a better candidate if he dresses these things mm-hmm. and doesn't look for the shortcut, right? Or the easy way out. Right. Yep. I agree. I agree. All right. All right. Well, thank you for yeah. <laughs> another episode of Amped Up with Proud Resistor. If you enjoyed this episode, we'll see you all next week for a brand new one. And you can tweet out the hashtag Amped Up uh, and we'll see you next week. Hey, this is Jody Hamilton, host of the podcast From the Bunker. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love my show where every week Sean Barton, David Shockett, and I discuss politics, sports, pop culture, that show on HBO that I don't watch. Find it at sexyliberal.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere else you get your podcasts.